Well, three days, three days away, can you believe it already, until more light starts coming into our world. Winter solstice has passed, and things turn imperceptibly at first, and then quickening as time goes by, just like the sunrise. It's not hard to see the sun. Well, I should say, it is hard to see the sunrise. Today was a little bit of an exception. It's not hard this time of year to see the sky go from black to light and how slow that seems. And so is the world that we live in at times. But this is why we celebrate the light coming into the darkness. Light will always conquer darkness. It's what we celebrate, especially at Christmas time, a powerful metaphor for the gospel, the good news. When our world is so engulfed by darkness and often feels overwhelmed by darkness, not just the actual darkness of this place on the globe and this time of the year, but certainly seemingly everywhere else we look, from societal to political, even we might feel it uh, emotionally, uh, mentally, or spiritually, uh, that there's darkness just abounding. Jesus, the light of the world, is incredible news, and we are by far not the first people to pick up on this metaphor. It's the Apostle John's primary way of declaring the hope of God and the hope of the gospel. This is how he begins his gospel, and this has been our jumping off point for this three-week mini-series in Advent. In John chapter 1, he said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him, all things were made, and without him, nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of men, for the light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not overcome it. Skipping to verse 9, the true light that gives light to all was coming into the world, that being Jesus. Jesus brought a new beginning. And John intentionally uses this same kind of language that was used in Genesis chapter 1 to begin the entire story of God. With God, there was creation. In Jesus, there was recreation. And so we look at Genesis chapter 1 in the beginning. God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, but the Spirit of God was there. And God said, let there be light With his first words ever declared, or at least that we ever know proclaimed, it was, let there be light. And God saw the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. He distinguished it. It had power and authority over the darkness. This is part three of a three-part series looking at Christmas from a slightly different angle. Not a manger in Bethlehem, but through an ancient tent in the Egyptian wilderness. We rightly ask, what does that possibly have to do with Christmas? And I've tried to make that point clear these last two weeks and concluding again today that the story of God, the broad story of God, and as we heard in in Rachel's readings, is to proclaim that God loves his people so much that he cannot be apart from them. He will pursue them forever. He desires to dwell with them. Just as in the garden and creation pictured that, and that community and intimacy was broken through sin, that represents what always happens, what we always do, denying or doubting, dismissing God, questioning his goodness, desiring other things, believing that other things or places or people 
passions or pursuits in the world will fill us. Maybe we don't even want to abandon God completely, but we want to go see if there's other things that could also fulfill us or satisfy. It's what always happens. What God always does is let us go. But he is not done pursuing. He will always come to us. And in this ancient tent, which was probably the most important story for the Israelite people, for the Jewish people, God's deliverance of them from slavery in Egypt to bring them ultimately back to a promised land, the land of Judea, that he had promised to their ancestors. And in that journey, God made it abundantly clear that his desire was to lead them and to be with them, to dwell with them. And he was going to do so in this tabernacle, this ornate tent that they were instructed to, to make while they traveled through the wilderness. God would dwell. He would come upon that tent. He filled it with the cloud of his presence. By day, he would lead the people through the cloud. At night, it would be like a pillar of fire. They always knew God was with them. This ornate tent that we've looked at somewhat in detail the last couple of weeks was meant to, to image the garden, the Garden of Eden. It was a second garden, obviously constrained, limited, restricted. But in even all of the furnishings, there was symbolism to say God was restoring his presence. He was restoring what was lost to come and dwell with humanity. And we've seen those connections pretty clearly as we've walked these last two Sundays the symbolism extended to the furnishings within the temple so that the chest of the covenant, or you may know it as the Ark of the Covenant in the most holy place in that tabernacle, held God's word, the Ten Commandments etched on stone representing God is there to speak. His word is with them just as it was in the garden. God spoke and it was good. Then there were three other furnishings in the holy part of the temple. And we've looked at two of them in the last two weeks, the table, with the bread of the presence, reminding them that God will always provide for them, just as he did in the garden. He provided in abundance, and his presence was there daily with them and for them. Then the altar of incense that we looked at last week, reminding that in God's presence, there was always fragrant aroma. It was a pleasure and a joy to be in his presence, just as it would have been in the garden, in that botanical garden. It would have been filled with a pleasing aroma. And the rising smoke from the burning incense reminded them again of God's presence with them in spirit. And finally, and perhaps the most powerful image of all, the reason we've held it to this close to the solstice, the golden lampstand, the one and only source of light inside the tabernacle, just as God himself ultimately is the light and brings life. Without the light, there would be no life. And that golden Lamp stand, think of a menorah maybe would come to mind with six branches coming out from the sides and then a, a center branch with a lamp. Each one of those branches in that center would have a lamp so that there were seven. Seven tends to be a, a powerful symbolic number of completion, of perfection throughout God's story. Each one, each, each light was not a candle. It would, was like an oil lamp that would be filled with olive oil and had a wick that would be trimmed and tended by the priest and would burn and would fill that place with light. All of the other furnishings in the tabernacle were overlaid with gold. And we, we considered the value, the extreme value. This was the most valuable piece of furn or furnishing within the tabernacle. It was the only thing made of solid gold. 
a talent of gold, equivalent to 75 pounds of gold. In modern day equivalents, that would be $2.1 million of gold just in the value of the gold alone, let alone the creation, the craftsmanship. It was shaped in the form of a tree, like an like a, um, almond tree with buds and blossoms to represent life and renewal. Perhaps, perhaps the almond tree was meant to reflect the tree of life from the garden, that in God's presence there is life, and to be in his light is life eternal. So much symbolism. Perhaps also the almond tree was selected. I like this. I'm just wondering that it was one of the first trees to blossom and to bloom in, in the region of Judea. So late January, early February, the almond tree starts to blossom and starts to bud. One of the first coming out of winter. I love plants around here that defy the winter, the crocuses that push up through the frozen earth, the magnolias that put forth uh, their life, the irises that sometimes you see growing out of, out of the harsh ground, that life comes from what appears to be death. Renewal, the winter will not win. God will renew all things. So we see powerful symbolism in the tabernacle as a reminder of who God is and what he has always done as a reminder of the garden and that he will dwell with his people. But more than just a reminder, it's a foreshadow of what's to come. The foreshadow that God's people clearly knew, this is not it. This is temporary. There is something more. God is coming to, to dwell. Praise, praise God. He is renewing. He is restoring. He is redeeming. But in that tabernacle, there was still separation. There was still distance well, you had to be a priest even to come in. You had to be the high priest to even enter into the most holy place. And that on once a year, through the blood of the sacrifices, there was cleansing and ritual and, and religion to it, recognizing the significant work, the significant process of restoring humanity with God's presence. It was meant to be temporary. One day the temple ultimately would be constructed, but even that too was a foreshadow of what God wanted to do to dwell with his people. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas. That God himself has now come to dwell in humanity as one of us. Jesus dwells and walks amongst us. Not limited and restricted to a place, but coming into the world to commune with humanity. To the last and the least and the lost, to us, he comes. And John makes this very clear, our jumping off verse, John chapter 1 verse 14. The word, that being Jesus, the divine, became flesh and made his dwelling. And we looked at that Greek word, skene, which means tent or tented. So this could say, the word became flesh and tented amongst us, which is such a strange thing to say unless you have ancient Jewish ears and recognize that that word that just simply could be translated tent was the word that they used consistently as a Greek-speaking Jew to say tabernacle. In fact, more common and more often would they understand, especially in these kinds of writings, that it should be translated tabernacle so that we would rightly read this. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us, which is still probably a really strange thing to say if we don't know our history of the story of God, which I'm trying to present for us, that we could more richly receive what these ancient Jewish ears would have heard, which was an absolutely bold statement, borderline blasphemous, that God himself has come to 
tabernacle to be the one who dwells with us. And we have now seen his glory, the glory of the one and only that previously rested on the tabernacle and then within the temple only is now in this man, Jesus, who is the fulfillment of the whole story, is the fulfillment of the tabernacle and everything within it is the fulfillment of the temple. The temple will be abolished. There was nothing that incensed the Jewish religious leaders and the Pharisees more than Jesus' claims around that. See that temple? It will be torn down, but raised again in three days. And they would tear their robes and wanted to stone him for that blasphemy. And then he would point to himself and ultimately said, I am that temple. I am the fulfillment. When he died upon the cross, one of the most significant things recorded is that the veil inside the temple was torn from top to bottom. That separation is over, not just for access in, but that God is coming out into the world. And so that symbolism and that understanding of of what God is doing to fulfill his story in order to dwell with his people, we see throughout the story. Jesus is the light of God. He is the lamp unto our feet, representing the glory of God. He has come. He is Emmanuel. He represents the purity of God. He represents the highest treasure, just as that lampstand was the highest treasure He represents the fulfillment of the whole story. His birth was also announced by light. If we remember that the shepherds saw the angels that shone around them and they trembled at that presence. The magi later would see the star in the east that shined, that shone, that imaged and reminded them that the king had come. The authors of the New Testament, the New Covenant, clearly saw Jesus in the fulfillment of this story. He is the tabernacle. He is the high priest who mediates between God and man. Having offered himself, he, now, he has access at all times into the holy place. He is imaged in these furnishings, the table, the altar, the lamp. He's the bread of life, the fragrant offering, the light of the world, pure and holy of utmost vitality for life. And he will not delay in fulfilling the promises of God like the blossoms that come in the spring. He will be the sign of renewal for humanity. Jesus himself claimed this. John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Consider how significant this claim is. It's in that very same chapter, in that very same teaching that the the Jewish religious leaders wanted to stone him and put him to death for the claims as he continued to even double down and say, I am, I am before all things. Consider this though. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Whereas previously the light of life was restricted and limited to this place, this temple inside And even to be in the presence of that light, that golden lampstand, you had to be born into the right family. Nothing to do with you, simply born into the Levitical priesthood to even enter in and tend those lights. And now what Jesus is claiming is, I am that light coming into the world. Whoever wants to be in the presence of God and commune with him simply needs to follow me. Doesn't need to come to me through birthright or religion or ritual, but I have come to the world. And whoever would follow me into the world, as Jesus called his disciples, come, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. 
those that walk with Jesus and follow him in the, today in the same ways he did, to the last and the least and to the hurting and to the broken, to give of themselves, to feed and care for the hungry and the hurting, to be present with them. That's where Jesus is, he says. Whoever wants to live in light and never have darkness would follow me in the ways that I entered into the world as the light coming into the darkness. One of the primary responsibilities of the priests was to tend those lamps, those seven lamps, to make sure the oil was filled, to trim the wicks so that they would constantly burn and never go out, so that there would always be light in the tabernacle, representing God's constant life, and life source and light against the darkness, bringing what is concealed to be visible, to drive back the darkness. You know that we who are followers of Jesus, the apostle Peter calls us a kingdom of priests, a royal priesthood. We are meant to have the same now responsibilities. While that was symbolic primarily, certainly there was much practical need for light in that dark place, and, but primarily symbolism of what God was doing. We are now meant to tend our light, to tend the wick and the oil. What, what, what does it mean to care for and to tend the light that we might give light to those in darkness? You know, more than even just the ministry of priests to bring light in, we are called the light. Jesus himself said in Matthew 5, 14, you are the light of the world. Pretty amazing when he claims, I am the light of the world coming into the world. Now he says to his followers, and now you are the light of the world. Go into it. Go into the darkness. For a city on a hill cannot be hidden, and neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. We could say, to everyone in the tent, the temple of God is now his creation. And those that follow him, because of the spirit of God in us, are meant to be that light. And Jesus says, in this way, let your light shine before all people, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father who is in heaven. Our world remains plunged into darkness. And I don't know how we could walk in it and live in it and not see it and perhaps even viscerally experience it at time from depression to oppression anxiety fear and despair and there's various ways to try to record that and understand that but the best experts estimate that it is at its highest rate ever in our western context and the way that we are handling it is not bringing healing Tragically, the suicide rate was, has been steadily climbing for two years, and the old, two decades, I'm sorry, for at least two decades. And in 2019, it took a slight dip. We don't have good, accurate estimates since the pandemic began, but I think we can only imagine. The enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy. The second leading cause of death amongst our children, 10 through 34 years of age, is suicide, the second leading cause of death. And if the enemy wants to steal, kill, and destroy, he's using all things to bring darkness. Because if we are blinded to reality, if we are feeling that we are just in darkness and can't see and don't see light and don't see hope, there's no light, there's no hope, there's simply despair, eventually we give in and would yield if there's no hope. But Jesus, the light of the world has come to overcome the darkness, 
to reveal what has been concealed, to bring light to what the enemy is trying to steal and remove, to bring us hope. And Jesus says, whoever would follow him will never walk in darkness, will never experience that kind of darkness and oppression, but will have the light of life. Will we take him at his promises? These are not my words. They are his. Will we receive them? Will we rebuke the enemy for trying to steal and kill life and hope in the name of Jesus? Would you pause now? Perhaps you've been doing so. But would you consider yourself with this metaphor? For some, this will be easier than others. See yourself as that lamp. A little lamp on the top of this lampstand that's meant to give light. Its whole purpose is to give light. Is your wick burning? Is it on fire? Is it doing its purpose? Is it bringing light to you and to all around you? Or has that light dwindled or even gone out? Or perhaps that light, you you would say, has never been lit. Your whole life, maybe at times you thought it was lit, but in in reality, it's never been lit. Darkness is really your primary reality. For others of us, we know that it has dwindled or gone out. We haven't tended it. We haven't cared for it. We've either run out of vital life-giving oil or we haven't tended and trimmed the wick. We haven't cultivated that light to keep it burning. Perhaps we have been the ones to cover it with the bowl because we are ashamed. Maybe not of Jesus, maybe of those who claim to be followers of Jesus. Maybe from our own sin, we have covered it. How could I let my light shine? I'm unable Perhaps we have simply been fighting what feels like an unwinnable fight, the darkness that oppresses in all places. But instead of focusing on fighting back the darkness, our focus must be on tending the light. The light will drive out the darkness. Jesus, the high priest, stands ready for you and for me to ignite us, to reignite us. That's not work we need to do. It's through repentance and confession. Repentance in Scripture, metanoia, is seeing things rightly, seeing things a new way, and therefore life changes because of that. Confession, that the way that we've been living, the way that we've been going, has been walking in darkness, not in light. Jesus stands ready. Would we pray something like this? Pause and even close your eyes if you need to, and pray something like this. May they be your words, not mine. Jesus, light of the world, come. Jesus, my priest, reignite me with your presence. Remind me of your life. I need your life and light in me. I feel overcome by darkness. Jesus, forgive me for my sin, for my doubt, for my distraction, for my desire for other things other than you. Light me anew. Burn away the impurities within me. I believe. I receive. I rebuke the enemy in your name. Fill me, fill us with your light and your life. Amen. Psalm 18, 28. You, O Lord, keep my lamp burning. My God turns my darkness into light. This is an ancient 
declaration of who God is and what he has done. And God is faithful to answer these prayers. He has already answered them. He has come. He has come. He has come. This is where we begin with repentance, with this metanoia, with seeing things rightly. And we continue to tend our lamp by walking in the ways of Jesus. How do we ensure that it does not go out? Jesus says, follow me and you will never walk in darkness, but have the light of life. So we walk in his ways, serving in his same ways. Jesus said, it is by your faith that all people will know that you're my father. No, he didn't. He said, it is by your good deeds that all will know. Your faith, your belief leads to that. It flows out of that. That order is vital. But it is by our good deeds, it's by living in the ways of Jesus that all will know your his followers. We're his followers and praise the Father in heaven. This is how we tend the light. Pursuing and caring and loving and welcoming the last and the least and the lost because that's what Jesus has done for us. We are not only, let's end on this, we are not only a people of remembrance of what God has done, therefore who he is and what we can hope for today. We are a people of vision for what God has promised The light wins. The light will overcome the darkness always. Life will triumph over death forever. The Apostle John didn't only write the story of Jesus coming to Judea 2,000 years ago. He wrote another book. We call it Revelation, where he spoke of the coming day of the light of the world in fullness, in completeness. This is how really the whole story ends. Revelation 21, verse 22, through John's vision I did not see in that day a temple in the city because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The presence of God with humanity. No limitation, no restriction. And the city does not need sun or moon for the glory of God gives it light and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. And the glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it. So from beginning of the story to the end and to our future hope, we see these themes weave together of the light and life and presence of God. So it felt right to end this three-part series with that hope as those are woven together. A more Eastern way to say it is not from beginning to end, but from beginning to new beginning to new beginning. God is a God who renews and restores and redeems all things. And while we are still waiting, along with all the followers of Jesus, John, the apostle himself, we are still waiting for this reality for this fulfillment. May we wait with an eager expectation. Just as the birth of Jesus was announced suddenly to unexpecting shepherds through light, the coming of Jesus will happen suddenly. And we will all know and behold the glory of God. This is the promise that we cling to. Our King will come and make all things right. John says in Revelation 22, 5, There will be no more night. 
They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. And Jesus said, Behold, I am coming soon. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your promises that remind us of your faithfulness to all of your promises. But when we are living in the, the not yet, we confess our doubt and our wonder, at times our fear, that we cannot trust you, that redemption and renewal and healing and justice and righteousness and freedom and unity and peace will not come, cannot come. We rebuke that. That is a lie of the enemy. Your word says it is true. Today, we take your word as truth. Would you help us, Lord? That's work we often can't even do on our own. We pray along with that desperate father from Mark chapter 9. We believe. Help us in our unbelief. Grow our faith, Lord, as we take steps toward you, to walk with you into this world. Would you be our light that others would see who you are, find hope and life and light in you where we have opportunity to serve, to give, and to proclaim your goodness and your glory. And what greater time than at Christmas where it is actually dark to celebrate with light and to be light to all peoples. Give us opportunity this week to reflect on the darkness, to tend the light that would drive it back in the power and the filling of the Holy Spirit through the gift of our good Father and through the sacrifice of Jesus, we believe, we receive, and we walk with you. Amen.